If you've not been here before, welcome to our class. We are studying church history in here, and we started, uh, uh, you, you are welcome to get on our website at biblicalliteracy.com. Yeah, thanks to, to the hard work of a lot of people, you can, uh, y'all come on in, we're just getting comfortable. Um, you uh, uh, are welcome to sign on there, you can get the lessons, you can get the PowerPoints and everything else. And I tell you that because we're going to have a little bit of a review this morning, but we'll not be starting with 33 AD. Um, we are talking today about the separation of the Church of England. How many of you speak English? Okay. The, the, the mere fact that we speak English, the, the word English is what we call it now. It's from the Angles, and that, those were people that invaded England. Um, uh, anybody ever been to Virginia? Okay, who's it named after? Virginia. Queen Elizabeth, that's right. Uh, <clears throat> it gets its name Virginia because she was the Virgin Queen. Okay? Jamestown was the first lasting British settlement in Virginia. The British started settling the Americas in the 1580s. All right? They started settling at Roanoke Island in Virginia, named Virginia Colony after the Virgin Queen at the time. Uh, when she dies, she's succeeded by King James. And that's who we'll be dealing with next week as we look at the King James version of the Bible. So we'll get up to King James today. And uh, Jamestown was the first final settlement in Virginia that, that uh, the British uh, started. And that was during the reign of King James. That's where uh, Pocahontas got converted. Okay? So that's what we're about today. And this is different than every break we've had with the church so far. If you go all the way back to that Coptic break-off that we had and, and, and you, in the 300s, I guess, and you chart through the various breaks in the East and West Division, all of these breaks happened because of theology. There was a fuss over the nature of Christ. There was a fuss over Roman supremacy. There was a fuss over uh, 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 justification by works or whether you're saved by indulgences. There's a fuss over the Mass. There's a fuss over... All theological fusses, not today. Today we look at a break that happened in the church because of politics. Plain, cold, simple politics and economics. And as I wrote this lesson, the hardest part for me was trying to figure out how to keep this from being a mere history lesson because we are in a Bible study class. And so I was trying to figure out how these are points for home beyond just the points that we learned from history. And I'm not sure how successful I was. We'll see when we get to that. But I think it's interesting going into this that we look at it from the frame of mind that uh, uh, you know, our faith is something that, that we get nourished and fed at church. But when we walk out the door, if what we do every day is not a part of our faith, then we're in a, a, a real hypocritical situation and we're denying the power of God to live in our lives. So what happened in England is instead of theology and, and God driving the church, the church gets driven at this point in time by political agendas. And it's so easy for us as Christians to take what we understand from God and what we understand from the Bible and make it molded and fit into our personal agendas. 
instead of us taking our personal agendas and molding and fitting them around the Word of God. That's the trap for us. And as we look at the lesson today, I don't want it to be just a history lesson. I want us to see how the trap was sprung. Now, the nice part about it is, even when man's agendas and man's inventions and man's desires clog up the direction and, uh, that, that we would think man should go, God still works sovereignly and has done some wonderful things in the midst of it. But <clears throat> that's where we are. So let's review for a moment. This is uh, Europe. Hey, we get a little bit of Asia over here and Turkey. But uh, Eastern Church really settles off, as we've discussed, over in the eastern part of, of uh, Europe and Asia and, and West Asia. So it's got Turkey and it's got Greece and parts of what are now the, the residual countries from the USSR breakup. That is considered Eastern civilization and the Eastern Church. The Western Church and Western civilization is down here from Portugal and Spain up through France and Germany and down through Italy. And this is the part of the church that is Roman Catholic because it's Catholic in the sense that it's a united church, Roman in the sense that Rome is considered the headquarters, if you will, of the church. It's the authoritative place of the church, but it's also called the Western church or the Western civilization, the Western Christian breakoff. And we have charted through that and we've started looking in Germany and the Netherlands and Switzerland at what we've had as a Reformation movement in the 1500s with Martin Luther, with Philip Melanchthon, with Ulrich Zwingli, with the Anabaptists, uh, um, uh, these folks we've been studying. This is where that breakoff occurred, the Reformation movement. What I want us to focus on this morning is... England, up here, that little English channel, which a few people have been stout enough to swim, has set England apart from the rest of Europe in a lot of ways, historically. And so that's what we're going to do. And to understand England, I think we need to take just a few steps back and make sure we're all swimming uh, the same direction on this. So that's what we're going to do. We don't know how Christianity first came to the church in England, but we do know that it was there by the year 200 because there was a fellow named Tertullian who wrote about it and mentioned the fact that there were Christians in England by the year 200. Not only that, we know in the Council of Arles in 314, which was a council called by Constantine, the Roman emperor, to try and resolve some disputes about the line of succession of bishops. If you want to go back and look, it was the Donatist movement. But it's the idea of, could someone still be a bishop of a church if when they were being persecuted, they recanted and said to the guys before they got martyred, okay, I was just joking, I'm not really a Christian. And then once the time of martyrdom passed, they said, well, actually, I had my fingers crossed when I said I wasn't a Christian because I really am a Christian and I want to be bishop again of this church. I want my job back. And there was a big fuss in northern Africa over whether those people got their jobs back or not. And so there was a big conference that was called, a council at Arles in 314 that Constantine called to try and get the church together on this issue. Three of the bishops that attended that conference were from England. So while we don't know much about British church at that time, we do know at 314 they have at least three bishops that have been appointed. Um, we can go further. In the early 1400s, there was a monk from England named Pelagius 
who came to Rome. He was the hit of the party. Everybody loved his British accent. And, and well, I don't know that they loved his accent, but he comes from, from, uh, from England, and he really is the smash hit until people start probing his theology. They find out that uh, uh, he's got some basic heresy to him. And Augustine, or Augustine, if we're good Catholics uh, pronouncing his name, I say Augustine because Protestants from Lubbock pronounce it that way. But uh, uh, I have to be careful because this is on tape. So I want people to know that we also have culture from Lubbock and we understand others may want to say Augustine. Of course, we spell culture with a capital K. Um, <clears throat> In the early 400s, Pelagius comes from England and uh, offers this heresy that Augustine spends uh, lots of pen and paper fighting. And uh, 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 so we know about that, at least, from England. We know in the 400s, St. Patrick leaves England. Now, he's over here in the western part and goes over to Ireland and he evangelizes Ireland. But during the 400s, while Patrick's over evangelizing Ireland, uh, over in that area, over here, Angles, we get English from it, and Jutes and Saxons, we get Anglo-Saxon from the Angles and the Saxons, they come over from what's now modern North Germany, and they start invading England, and they conquer England. And for 150 years, there's really not much church going on in England. It's a bunch of pagan worship of Thor and Odin and the thunder gods of Norse mythology. The only Christianity really to speak of up here is going on over there in Ireland. Now, in the 600s, there's a reconversion in England by a new Augustine, St. Augustine of Canterbury, who becomes the Archbishop of Canterbury and establishes it. This is in 597 or so. Pope Gregory the Great says, Hey, I saw these Angle slaves in the marketplace, and Angle just happens to be like the Greek and Latin word for angel. So he goes, Pope Gregory sees this and says, What kind of a slave is this? And they say, This is an Angle. And he says, No, it's an angel. We need to go evangelize their country. So he tells Augustine, you go up there to England and you convert them. And Augustine says, I don't want to. And he says, well, I want you to. So Augustine goes up there. He gets up to the English Channel. He gets ready to cross it. And he says, man, I hear those people are fearsome and I don't want to do this. So he just turns around and goes back. Says to Gregory, you know, I got close, but I, I, you can get killed doing this kind of stuff. Pope Gregory said, well, before I've been asking you, now I'm telling you. I'm your father of faith. You get over there and you evangelize them or you die trying. And so Augustine gets up the courage. He goes over there only to find out when he lands that King Ethelbert of the Angles, Jutes, and Saxons happened to have married a woman, a queen, who was a Christian from Gaul. And so Augustine, after all of this, oh, I don't want to go, I don't want to go, I don't want to go, goes in there. They baptize like 10,000 in a day. The king's so excited. It's almost like the sermon this morning. Oh, you knew. You came. Great. And uh, uh, England is converted. England continues this Christianity throughout its history. We do need to pause. If you're a student of British history, William the Conqueror in 1066, it's the Normandy invasion uh, going up instead of uh, World War II coming down. He goes up from Normandy and he conquers... England, and he was a big, big member of the church. Uh, um, uh, he had the support of the Pope when he went up there, 
and the church had just kind of languished, you know, it was kind of the laid back church. It's like what you would think the church would be in a Caribbean island, you know, that was the Caribbean of their day. And it was, you know, hey, man, everything's okay. And everything's kind of, hey, whatever, no problem. And da, 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 da. And the church was laid back. William comes up and he infuses it. But the problem is, this is in the 1000s when the Pope starts exercising brand new authority that the popes really hadn't had before. And the Catholic Church starts becoming a real strong papal church. So William brings a refocus to the Christian faith, but he does so with an archbishop, Lanfranc, who comes over, and he passes some laws that keeps the Church of England a little bit more distant from Rome. First law he passes is, he says, no one is allowed to be excommunicated from this church without my okay. That was real important. Because once that law is passed, the biggest clout that the Pope had to keep all of the emperors in line was he threatened to excommunicate the Pope. I mean, the kings. Well, now, Pope can't excommunicate King... the Normandy of William, William the Conqueror, can't excommunicate him unless William says, I go along with that. That's job security for him. Okay? Second thing he says is, none of my bishops are allowed to leave England without my okay. So any bishop that's favorable to the Pope's not going to get to leave. So there's not going to be any conspiring behind William's back. My choir's out. Y'all come on in. Third thing. New law. Pope writes any letter to anybody, king gets to read it first and decides whether or not it gets delivered. See, there's great insulation here for the church in England. Now, this is very important. Y'all hang with me on this. Because I could not call this the Anglican break-off. The Church of England does not view itself as ever having broken off from any Catholic church. They are the continuous Church of England whose bishops follow themselves all the way back through to apostolic authority through their appointments. They say, we never left the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church has with the Roman Catholic Church has withdrawn from us, but we are still the Catholic Church, the universal church, the apostolic church. And so we call it a separation, but we don't call it a break off because this was never a, gee, let's break off. The king kept this. Now, over the next couple hundred years, sometimes the king would be closer tied in to the pope. Sometimes he wouldn't. It'd go back and forth. That brings us now to the 1500s, and we are up to date. I'm Henry VIII, I am. Henry VIII, I am, I am. Remember? Herman's Hermits? They got it wrong. Everyone was an entry. Okay, the Henry VIII stuff was not about the widow next door who got married eight times. It was actually about the king himself. And he only got married six times. We're going to focus especially on his first two wives, but we'll look at it today. Henry VIII, look at him. I haven't seen a guy in a dress like that in a long time. Henry VIII was an interesting fella. He takes the throne at a very young age. He's 17 years old when his, his uh, kingdom is uh, inherited 
through uh, 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 the genetic lines and the death. He's 17 when he takes the throne. He's a true Renaissance man, kid. Except he gets married like almost immediately. He turns 18 real quick and gets married almost immediately. He's a true Renaissance man. He's well-read. He's fluent in Latin, Greek, English. He's fluent in uh, French. He's a musician. Can write and sing songs. He's uh, 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 theologically trained. Knows his Thomas Aquinas and can argue it with any theologian. Um, his handwriting is pretty weak. That's his signature. You can see the E-N, and that's the R and the Y. Henry Tudor, that's his H. Um, um, so Henry VIII takes the throne, and he's actually a defender of the faith. In the 15, 17, 18, 19, 20 era, you remember Luther wrote those books in 1520 that just really galvanized and worried the church and a lot of the nobility. Uh, Henry VIII writes a response defending the faith against Luther. So the guy's uh, uh, well-read, good theologian and everything else. He marries the widow of his older brother. Henry was not the one that should have inherited the throne. His brother, though, his older brother, dies and leaves as a widow, Catherine of Aragon. This is Catherine as a young lady. It's a portrait we've still got today. Catherine of Aragon, Aragon's part of Spain, becomes uh, 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 the wife and then queen of Henry VIII. And they lived for about 17 years. And uh, by the way, she had better handwriting than he did. That's uh, Catherine the Queen. That's the way she signed her name. They lived for 17 years in marital whatever they had. But in the process, the goal is produce an heir. That's the real responsibility of the queen. King Henry wants an heir to the throne. He needs a male child. They have three sons. They have two daughters. By the way, this is what she looked like after three sons and two daughters. <laughs> That's her in 1530. That's the naivete of youth. That's the cold, hard look of experience. <laughs> three, three sons and two daughters later... There's trouble at home. You'd say, why? She had three sons and two daughters. Well, two of the daughters died in infancy and both sons. So all she's really got is a daughter named Mary and no offspring. And at this time, she's pushing 40. And Henry realizes his 40-year-old Catherine of Aragon is not going to be giving him the son he needs. So he kind of has the wandering eye. And Catherine has these ladies in waiting. They're like servant types. And one of them is a woman named Anne Boleyn. Now, this is a very friendly painted portrait of Anne Boleyn. Because at the time, women were supposed to be more plump than thin. And a lot of people didn't think Anne was much to look at because she was uh, uh, more thin than plump. Also at the time, you were supposed to have pasty white skin. 
like Snow White. And, and Anne Boleyn had a tan. Okay? So, lots of people said, why is the king interested in old uh, shapely tan Anne Boleyn when he could have plump, pasty, white Catherine? And yet he was. Maybe it was her signature. Anne, the queen. She actually had the best handwriting of all of them, my opinion. So, Henry wants to marry Anne. To do that, he's got to divorce Catherine. But technically, you don't want to divorce her. You need an annulment in the Catholic Church. You need to get the church to recognize that the marriage was never proper to start with. Well, this looks like a job for Cardinal Woolsey, who, by the way, was a wonderful chef. And you can download some of his recipes to this day on the Internet if you ever care to. Things we learn at church. Cardinal Woolsey is told by King Henry, you got to get my marriage annulled. Woolsey says, well, uh, what's our grounds? That's easy. It's, a, it's an incestuous relationship. She was married to my brother. So Woolsey takes this to the Pope. Now the problem is, before Henry got to marry her in the first place, he got the previous Pope to say that the marriage was valid and there was no incest rule that applied. So the Pope's got one issue. He's got to like contravene what an earlier Pope did to say this marriage ought to be annulled. But there's another problem. You see, Caroline of, uh, of uh, Aragon, Aragon, her um, nephew is Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, that the Pope's trying to get to excommunicate Luther. See, this is like a sordid web. If you've been in the class, you can follow some of this. If not, just sleep for a moment and we'll wake you back up. Um, so the Pope doesn't want to offend Charles because he doesn't want Charles to start siding with Luther and lose all of Germany and France and the Netherlands. So the Pope says, I can't upset the, the, the nephew, emperor, and I got this problem anyway with the other Pope saying it, I got this king of England who wants an annulment. What should I do? I know. I'll put it in my scarlet O'Hara file. Does anybody know what that is? I'll think about it tomorrow. And tomorrow never comes, right? It's always tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. So he just starts dragging his feet and he doesn't do anything. And a year passes. And Henry's sitting there... Come on, Cardinal. I said I want this annulled. I'm the king. I say jump. You say how high. Get the Pope off of his throne and tell him to annul my marriage. Another year passes. Woolsey, are you even trying to do this? I want Anne Boleyn. I need an offspring. So Henry starts taking matters into his own hands. He gets his new archbishop, a fellow named Thomas Cranmer, and they start making changes. They get Parliament to start passing some laws that they need. The first law. We're, well, actually, this is before the law, or while the law's changes are taking place. They start sweeping out the Pope's men. They start finding these bishops, and, and basically, uh, Henry says, hey, anybody who's going to be a bishop has to take a pledge of allegiance to me over and against anyone else because we are first and foremost British men. And so you take first that oath to me 
And if not, you're treasonous. And if you're a bishop, you not only take the oath to me, but you have to pay me a whole bunch of money. And those that aren't able to do it or those that are friendly to the Pope, he just basically kills them for treason. So they sweep the Pope's men out of the church, and now the bishops are all bishops who are following King Henry. Then they go to Parliament and have Parliament pass a law that declares Henry is supreme head of the church in England. The Pope can be supreme head of the church in Rome and wherever wants to be part of that. But in England, the supreme head is King Henry VIII. Then he gets Congress to pass, uh, Congress, Parliament to pass another law that severely reduces the amount of money they're shipping to Rome. Now they're just going to pay the Pope a little bit and Henry gets to keep all the money. Then they pass another law that says if the church makes a decision and someone wants to appeal the church's decision, it doesn't get appealed through church courts to Rome. We're British. It gets appealed in our English court system. Now, that's the one he needed. You know why? Now he gets his buddy, the archbishop, to say, Oh, bye-bye, Catherine. Marriage annulled. And by the way, anybody wants to appeal it, you appeal it to the king of England. <laughs> Hello, Anne. And he gets married. Um, there are some other changes they did. They said Henry gets to define and punish heresy. He's supreme head of the church. He can say what's heresy and what's not. And he can assess the punishment. That allows him to clean house even further. The bizarre part of all of this is in practice itself, Henry VIII is still very Catholic. He surrounds himself naturally with some reform-minded Protestant-leaning people because they're the ones who most readily want to get rid of the Pope and the Pope's influence. But from a theology perspective, absent papal jurisdiction, King Henry's very Catholic in what he does. And he sees the issues in a very Catholic manner. Now, we're not doing justice to our story if we fail to say that Henry does have six wives. We covered the first two here. Anne doesn't last very long. She loses her head, uh, literally. Uh, uh, but not until after she gives birth to a child, uh, not a son, a daughter named Elizabeth. She becomes virgin queen, gets Virginia named after her. And so we've still got, Henry's got Mary, his first daughter, that lived from Catherine. Then he's got Elizabeth, a second daughter, alive from Anne. Then he gets to marry Jane Seymour. She, that's her name, Queen Jane. Jane Seymour. And Jane Seymour finally gives him a son. That's not, by the way, Jane Seymour. That's the son. He looks a little bit um, uh, non-masculine because, bless his heart, he's seven years old when he becomes king. Henry VIII dies. Now, seven-year-olds are kings, can be king in England at the time, but they don't really make a lot of the decisions themselves. That's why uh, civilization pr progresses as opposed to stopping with whatever seven-year-olds played with back then. If it were today, it'd be like 
all cars would be eliminated and everyone would have the little remote control cars and drive them. You know, the king would not push society forward. In religious matters, there's a committee that gets put together from daddy's men who decide what the new supreme head of the Church of England, the seven-year-old kid, wants to put out there. Well, remember I told you that the men who surrounded King Henry had real Protestant leanings, and that's why they wanted to get rid of the Pope? Once Henry and his Catholic theology are gone, they come storming into power. And the Protestants take over. They issue a brand new prayer book. They simplify the liturgy. They make it a whole lot uh, easier to follow and easier to understand. They increase congregational worship. They say, now the people don't just come and sit and go through this Latin liturgy that nobody understands anyway, but they're going to actually participate. They'll be singing. They not only do that, but they put the liturgy into English with the English Book of Common Prayer in 1549. Now, they don't view themselves as separating out from the Catholics. In fact, the introduction to the Book of Common Prayer says, we are the Church of England. We've always been the Church of England. We have apostolic succession. We just don't have papal jurisdiction. We don't think the Pope is over us in any special way. They also changed the Eucharist. They changed the way the Lord's Supper is being given. Now, how do you do this? You can't just go out to people who've been doing something all of their life and say, hey, we're going to change this. Everything you've been doing all your life is wrong. This whole idea that Jesus is in the elements in some real way, it's all wrong. You can't just get people to go along with that. So you know what they do? This just cracks me up. They send out subversive little messages that kind of make fun and mock what's going on. So people say, yeah, that is kind of superstitious and goofy that every time we have the Eucharist, Jesus is sacrificed all over again. And he actually becomes the blood and the body in the wine and the bread. So they send people out to make fun of it. You ever make fun of anything or hear people make fun of stuff, right? Like um, uh, if you ever watch Stephen Colbert on the Colbert Report, he makes fun of people's names and he'll mix up their names like the guy who's president of Iran, the Amidajibinibadab or whatever it is. He comes up with some new way of saying it each time. That's exactly what they do. So you take the liturgy, the liturgy has got this line, hoc est corpus deum, this is the body of God. Hoc, this, est, is, corpus, body, corpus Christi, body of Christ, body, deum, God, this is the body of God. And they start turning it into hocus pocus, which is, some believe, where we get that phrase from. Magicians in the 1600s take it over and start using it for any superstition or magic. But it was originally a way of poking fun of hocus corpus diem. It's a bunch of hocus pocus. Those people didn't speak Latin anyway. So it was an easy way to make fun of it and a natural thing to do. So the Protestants take over. They put in more sermons. They put in more scriptures. And this is what happens. Unfortunately, tuberculosis sets in to poor King Edward VI lungs, and the seven-year-old boy doesn't live to see his 18th birthday. He dies. 
he did not have offspring. So you got to go backwards to find the next heir to the throne. Do you know who it is? Mary, first daughter. The daughter through Catherine of Aragon. The daughter who these Protestant ministers said the marriage is annulled and she's an illegitimate child when she was 16. Oh, that's a real good memory. Don't you know she's really coming in with a warm, soft fuzzy for all these Protestants of dads who had kicked her and mom out of the house when she was 16, told her she was illegitimate and wouldn't have any right to the throne. She's called Bloody Mary because she starts killing a bunch of these people. She is a staunch dyed-in-the-wool Catholic who has the right as the supreme head of the church to define doctrine and heresy and punish it because of the way Parliament wrote the laws. Parliament, in fact, finds this out real quick because she can tell they're all treasonous and have them all beheaded if she wants to. So Parliament real quick passes laws that says, Ah, just joking, we were so wrong on everything we've done for the last 30 years. We're repealing every law we passed. Isn't it nice to be back in fellowship with Rome in the Catholic Church? Rome sends over their bishop. He purges everything. The Archbishop of Canterbury is killed. I mean, it's it's a, a, a martyred. It's a massive house cleaning. But... Bloody Mary doesn't live but about five years. This says server connection interrupted, but it's not, is it? I don't know why. It's still up there. If it quits, then tell me. Um, the, uh, so, so she doesn't last but about five years. But during that five years, all of those Protestant changes, it's like water in a bathtub just sort of sloshing back and forth. England goes Catholic. England goes Protestant. England goes Catholic. She dies. In comes Elizabeth. Elizabeth brings in the Via Media. Via is Latin for road or way. Media is middle. Because everybody wondered, what's Elizabeth going to do? Is she going to slosh over here and be Catholic and let the Catholics continue to run everything? Is she going to slosh over here and be uh, uh, Protestant? The Puritans are out in force. See, when, when Bloody Mary is killing off everybody who's a Protestant, you know what the smart Protestants did? They left. They went to Geneva and studied under John Calvin and his offspring theologically. So now you've got these dyed-in-the-wool Calvinists who come back to England when Elizabeth comes in and say, Hey, can we move home now? And they're staunch Puritans at this point. I mean, these are the... These are where the pilgrims come from. Okay? These are where people who settled the new world come from. They want Mary to be a staunch Protestant Calvinist, predestination. The Catholics say, no, 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 no. We're doing fine. Let's stay with Catholicism. You saw what happened to Edward. God cursed him and he died. It's tuberculosis, but he died. Ed Elizabeth says, I'm going to do the middle road. I'm going to do the Via Media. The middle road is this. You got your Catholics on one side, you got your Puritans on the other. In the middle, you got your Anglicans, the Church of England. And what we'll do is we'll have some Catholic worship, but we're going to have some Protestant theology. 
We're going to have justification by faith. You're saved by your faith, not by your works. We're not going to have the selling of indulgences and penances. We're going to have a Catholic worship in a lot of ways, but we're going to do it in Protestant language. We're going to have a, it in English. We are going to do, we're going to have a Eucharist, but the Eucharist is going to be consubstantial, not transubstantial. Don't have time to go into the details. The point I'm driving at is, have you ever met anybody who was a Protestant that married a Catholic and when they got married decided the middle ground they would find is an Episcopal church? I got some hands going up on that. This is the Episcopal church. In America... See, these are, the, these are the Anglicans that come. Now we're back full circle. These are the Anglicans that come and settle Virginia. These are the Anglicans that were coming to Virginia, but the GPS got messed up and they landed instead at Plymouth Rock. They, literally, they were going to Virginia. They just got messed up and they settled at Plymouth Rock. It is... Elizabeth reigns for 50 years... It's the golden age of England. It's the Elizabethan era. She is the virgin queen. She never gets married. When she dies, they got to go up to Scotland to get King James. Because they're going backwards to pull in a new king. She doesn't have offspring. She's the virgin queen. She rules for a long time. And she takes that middle road all the way down. Now, America... We get settled by the English, along with other nations. But the English settlement here is, by and large, the Church of England, the Anglican Church. The supreme head is the ruler of England. What happens at the Revolutionary War? Do you want the head of your church to be the king of England when you're rebelling against the king of England? No. So at that point, the Anglican, the Church of England in America reorganizes as the Episcopal Church in America. That's where the Episcopal Church comes from. And so it gets an independent structure here in America. Does that make sense? What I find interesting as we go to the points for home. Point for home number one. I want to talk about church and state for just a minute. Every break-off we've had of the church has come from some theological issue up until the Church of England, and then it's just cold politics. I totally left out the fact that Henry VIII was at war a bunch and needed money. Wars are not cheap. And he was also very ticked off at all of the property the Catholic Church had in England. So he took it. And he auctioned it off. He dissolved all the monasteries. And then when Prince Edward is king... Uh, Edward needs the money, though he doesn't know it. He's just seven. And you've got the Protestants coming in. So they start auctioning off all of the Catholic regalia. They auction off the vestments that the priests wear. They auction off all of the golden plates and silver vessels and the candelabras. They auction off all the artwork and the icons because they're cleaning house. See, um, uh, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's an economic thing as well. But I find it really interesting that in a matter of a couple of years, by some passing of laws, the Catholic Church is basically kicked out of England. 
and the church is, is recognized as an independent branch of the Catholic Church. Totally independent, not under the Pope. It took Luther 20 years to separate from the Catholic Church and a lot of fuss and fight, and it was done over theological issues. But when it was politics, man, they did it like that. They did it with a few strokes of the pen and the passing of a few laws. I get real nervous over church and state issues. Maybe it's the lawyer in me. Maybe it's the student of history. I don't know. But you look at it from our perspective, and we live in America, a democracy where we get to elect our officials. And I want to know. I want to know where my officials are in terms of a relationship with the maker. That's important to me. Don't get me wrong. You can take the most godly person in the world, and if they're an absolute bozo at getting things done, I'd just as soon have the pagan who will get things done right. Isn't that harsh for me to say? But there is an efficiency issue as well. I don't blindly vote for the person who seems closest to me in theology. But it's certainly an issue because it's an integrity issue. And I don't know how well you can do a job if you don't have integrity. It's an issue of, of values and ethics. I don't believe in the hogwash that governments don't legislate morality. They do. Everything's morality. Everything to me is. You're not allowed to murder. Okay, well, that's a moral decision. There are some people maybe that are, you know, maybe in, in another area you say, these people deserve. No, of course not. But that's still a moral issue. It's a right and wrong issue. It's not right to kill people because they're made in the image of God. See, you've got, you've got, so I want to know what people's faith are, but I'm telling you, I do not want the president of this country or the governor of this state or the mayor of this town to be the head of my church. I, I, it's, it's a tough issue. And so here's where it gets even tougher because politicians know there are people like me out there voting they are real quick to talk about a faith that they think I want to hear to get my vote. So I'm a real cynic on that too. I want to know where their faith is. But when they tell me, I don't believe half of what I hear. I'm in a real predicament. And that's why I never enjoy the process of voting even though it's something we got to do and have an obligation to do. Because it's tough to figure out how to do that. But historically, we have a country that was set up and established independent of the church, where the government's not going to be dictating what the church is. That is the separation of church and state. Because our, our governors, our founding fathers, recognized how harshly it, it, it manipulated and maneuvered not just government, but the church itself. That's a protection intended for the church as well as government. But that's never been intended as an idea that we don't consider Christian matters or matters of faith when we look at our elected officials or when we do things in public. See the difference? I don't know. But it's something to chew on. Um, faith ought to drive our life. Our life should not drive our faith. Don't decide what your theology is based on what you need it to be to justify what you're doing. Don't decide what right and wrong is based on what you want it to be so that you can say you're right. Find out what God says about something and live your life based on that. Let God and His Word decide what righteous is for you. 
governments come and go. Um, church leaders come and go. But I want to tell you, God's word stands forever. Isaiah 40 says, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. It's true. To everything there is a time and a season, but not for the word of God. It applies in all times and seasons. It never changes. It is constant. It is God's revelation to us. And I underscore that to say that the church may be here, the church may be there, the church may be here. Government may be here, it may be there, it may be here. We're called to be involved in it. We're called to help guide it. We're called to help lead it. But the driving revelation for us needs to be the Word of God and our individual walk with God and our individual exposure to the Word of God, Jesus. And that's what drives our train. And that's what drives our choices in government. And that's what drives our choices in the church. Be very, very wary of people who are getting power and money and positions. And want to control what you and I do. Because our decisions need to be based on the word of God. And not what someone else tells us. Their motives... There's not a person in this world who has the pure motives of God. God gives us instruction on how to live our life and what to do. Why on earth would we follow someone who says something contrary to what God says? It makes no sense. So I urge everybody in here to spend time and study and spend time in the Word and spend time with God. Just do it. Make a commitment. I don't care how old you are. I don't care how young you are. Make a commitment. I'm going to spend time in the Word of God. Because I want my relationship with God to be built upon Jesus Christ as God has revealed Him to me. And then when you come to church, and then when you're involved in politics or you're wherever, you've got this, this guiding force, a light to your feet that will illuminate truth and allow you to discern what's right and wrong. Instead of just sloshing in the bathtub from one side to the other. Based on what, boy, that sounded real good, or boy, that sounded real good. Okay, I'm on a soapbox here. I need to move on. And I thought I'd end it appropriately with watch out for arrogance, because we are so wrong on so many things sometimes, and we just automatically think we're right. Let's keep growing. Let's keep embracing God. But the answers come from God, first and foremost, then through his servants and others. Does that make sense? Okay. That's the lesson. Next week, we're going to do King James and we're going to do the Bible and how we got our Bible and which translation's what. And there are some incredible stories behind it. I think it's a real great blessing. And anybody who ever asks the question, how do I know that this is accurate, needs to be here. Pray with me. Lord, bless our class. Thank you for bringing us in, in where we are. And I thank you that in spite of man's inventions and man's directions and man's misdirections and man's good motives and man's bad motives, that your hand, your Holy Spirit has been on your people and you have guided us through history and you guide us no less today. I thank you for the godly church where we worship. I thank you for godly leaders like David Fleming and others who spend time in your word and seek to push us in directions that are clearly yours. And I thank you that we live in a government and a time where many of our politicians are trying their best to guide this country in godly ways. And I pray for every governing official we've got right now that you'll give them wisdom and discernment. 
whether they acknowledge you as God or not, that you will move in what they do to make us the kind of people we need to be to bring your kingdom throughout this world. That is our prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen.